listening to Goal Line Extended on the Lacrosse Flash Podcast Network. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to Goal Line Extended. Today is Tuesday, April 13th, and I am your host, Ryan Holswitz. Thank you for joining us for our seventh show of GLE. We are happy that you are here watching or listening from wherever you might be. Goal Line Extended is available on YouTube and as a podcast for your viewing or listening conveniences. Make sure to check all that out. Uh, all of our links are in the description as well as lacrosseflash.com. You can check that out for more. But we have an exciting show planned for today. In a few short moments, Flash contributor and writer Harrison Silcox will be joining me to look back at the weekend that was in college lacrosse. We saw two of the top teams in the country fall, one of them for the first time this season, the other for their second consecutive loss. How does that impact the new rankings? We'll be talking about that momentarily. We also saw two great games out of the Patriot League as we begin to get kind of a better idea of how that conference is shaping out here as we near the end of the regular season. Seeding ahead of the conference tournament, obviously, at stake. And then following Harrison Silcox will be Pat Gregoire. Greggy and I will be teeing up some of the top storylines to watch for in the PLO, especially as we get closer and closer to the college draft. We just got recent news that schedules will be released this week. So we will be looking ahead to that. We'll also be circling back to some of the stuff that we've already talked about on this show. But looking forward to that, we're still in the middle of the waiver period. As of Monday afternoon, we don't have any new claims, but if we get anything during the week, we will make sure to cover it ahead of Friday. So Greggy will be joining me very shortly. Can't wait for that conversation. And then after Pat is what some might call an absolutely legendary interview. We got chaos head coach Andy Towers to hop on with us here on Goal Line Extended. That will be coming your way towards the end of the show, so make sure to stick around for that. If you're not already, follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at GL Extended. And let's get right into this thing. Harrison Silcox, Welcome back to GLE. Glad to have you here. And hey, man, some awesome games that we have the opportunity to talk about today. Obviously, as we usually do here on this show, let's start with the ACC because the ACC is king in college across, and this weekend was nothing short of it. The top two teams in the nation, Duke, coming off an overtime win against North Carolina a little over a week ago. They traveled to North Carolina, uh, Notre Dame excuse me, to take on the Fighting Irish, and they come out of it as the number one team no more. The Irish knocking off Duke. 13-8, to eight, a pretty decisive victory here for Notre Dame. They seem to have this one in control from the jump and never really turned away. The defense, led by Jake, uh, Jake Keelty and Kyle Thornton, was great. They shut down attackman Michael Sowers and held him to a single point. An assist is all he was able to log in this one. But for the Irish defense, they played great throughout. Brandon O'Neill went for a hat trick. Ty Montgomery, you know, he had four assists on the day, really adding that element to his game. As of late, he's got 19 assists on the year, trailing only Michael Sowers on the team. But other than those two bright spots offensively, nothing really to remember from this one if you're Duke besides the bitter feeling of this loss. And then obviously Jake Nasso continuing to dominate at the faceoff X because for yet another week, he does just that. Despite the loss, 73% on the day against the tandem of Charlie Leonard and Kyle Gallagher. So another solid performance from Nasso. And really, for the first time this season, we can't say the same about Duke's overall performance. But for the Irish, Entman was great in cage to back up that strong defensive performance. He faced 20 shots, was able to turn aside 12 of them to allow his team to take and then hold onto that early lead that they built. Offensively for the Irish, senior midfielder Morrison Meyer getting on the scoring getting in on the scoring action, excuse me. He had four goals on the day to double his season mark. He now sits on eight goals on the season. Wheaton Jacoboyce scored himself a hat-trick. Will York had two goals back-to-back. And like Michael Sowers, the Blue Devils defense able to keep Pat Cavanaugh quiet. Just a goal and an assist for him on the day. Harrison, what's your biggest takeaway from this one as Notre Dame able to get out to an early lead, hold on to it behind that really strong defense that they have? And now 
we no longer have a uh, have Duke as the number one. It isn't Notre Dame, but it is no longer Duke. What are your biggest takeaways from this one? Yeah, my biggest takeaways this one was Notre Dame's defense as a unit. Uh, people really want to talk about uh, Kilty or Thornton, or, or maybe if you want to talk about Arden Cohen as well. But what really impressed me about this Notre Dame defense was their short stick defensive midfielders. Uh, this is a team that has full and complete trust in their short sticks to get the job done. At one point, I don't remember who it was, but uh, there were a couple times where Michael Sowers was at X with a short stick on him and tried to dodge upfield. And you didn't see Notre Dame panic. You didn't see an early slide come. You saw a short stick D mid hold his own against what many believe is the best attackman in the country. So I was really, really impressed by Notre Dame short stick D mids. And then the other thing, you mentioned it, uh, Naso going 73% at the faceoff X. If you're Notre Dame, who is 7 of 23 on faceoffs against the number one team in the country, one of the best offenses we've ever seen in this sport, and you still come away with a 13 to 8 win, that's really impressive. So those are the two things that really stood out to me, Ryan, was the short stick D mids and Notre Dame able to hold Duke to just eight goals despite losing faceoffs 7 to 23. And one issue for Duke, though, that I think really made a bigger difference in this game is they had 22 turnovers. They were sloppy in the clearing game. Transition was not a bright spot for them. Uh, and Notre Dame just had 12. So Notre Dame took care of the ball, even though they didn't win faceoffs. Duke did not, and Notre Dame's defense made him pay for it. Notre Dame head coach Kevin Gorgon becoming the all-time leader in wins at a single Division I program with 311. He'll be looking to build on that going into the rest of this season and into the postseason tournaments. And these two teams will meet again later this month, this time in Durham, North Carolina. So we'll be looking ahead to that one, April 22, the scheduled day. In the interim, Duke will head to Virginia on Thursday. We'll be talking about that game in a little bit. And then as uh, and then Notre Dame with the week off. So back-to-back -back games against the Blue Devils would, would have to imagine uh, both of these teams will be ready for this early rematch. Elsewhere in the ACC, North Carolina, after starting the season 8-0, concede their second in a row against another ACC foe last Thursday night at Duke in overtime and this past weekend at home against Virginia. Virginia getting the win 18-16 to in a game that was once again dominated by Petey LaSalle at the faceoff X, winning 26 of 38 draws, good for 68% on the day. And most importantly, and probably most notably, he won all but one of 12 faceoffs. Uh, one of 12 of the 12 faceoffs that he took in the fourth quarter, and he scored both of his points in the final frame to hold off any sort of comeback from the Tar Heels, one of those points being a goal from LaSala. Again, 18-16 to 16 the final. Both goalies were solid, 15 saves apiece, but obviously when you have 34 combined goals, you have a ton of goal scores, so let's run through those right now. For Virginia, Matt Moore posted two goals and six assists, a huge day for Moore. Ian Laviano and Jeff Connor, the beneficiaries of those assists. Laviano had four goals and two assists. Connor, the junior, with four goals to double his season total. That is now sitting at nine goals. Payne Cormier and Peter Garno also got goals on the board for Virginia, two apiece to round out the heavy scoring for Virginia. And as for North Carolina, William Perry scored four goals and two assists. Chris Gray, Connor McCarthy each had hat tricks, and Gray added an assist to his day as well. But North Carolina now dropping their second in a row and set to take on Syracuse this weekend. As for Virginia, they are back on track after dropping their first two conference games of the season. They are back up to 500 on the year in conference play, and they'll host Duke this 
Thursday. Harrison, between these two teams and the outcome we got, and then considering the situations that they are both in coming into this game, and now what we see they look like on the other side of it, which team will be impacted most by this outcome going forward? Virginia getting back on track in the ACC, or North Carolina now dropping their second straight game heading into another big test this weekend? Uh, it's really a hard question to answer because every team in the ACC has just been so good. I mean, Paul Carcaterra kind of alluded to this uh, during the Notre Dame game where he said, if you think you know who's going to win an ACC matchup over the weekend, you're lying. So it, it this could go either way. I think what's most important and what's really unique about the ACC this year with COVID-19 is, you know, they could very well have all five you know, four teams, a lot of teams get an at-large bid into the tournament. So what's more important for these teams is just how they are leading into May, right? At the end of this month and leading into May. So uh, obviously Virginia comes away better because they got the win against North Carolina. It's back-to-back ACC wins for the Cavs. Um, But what's more important is these teams are just able to fine-tune their games down the stretch of the season, stay competitive in the rankings, stay up there, you know, in that top 10, top eight section, hope that there's no crazy upsets in any of the smaller conferences in college lacrosse. So uh, both these teams have their sights set on championship weekend. So when I look at the ACC on a week-to-week basis, the games are fun to watch. And it's definitely important who wins, who loses, and who is on thin ice and who may not be. But also, uh, it's a unique situation playing this double ACC schedule where you've got some teams are playing other teams twice, some teams just once, um, where all these ACC teams, though, the end of the road for them, they all think they have a national championship caliber team. So while the loss definitely sets North Carolina back a little bit, who's going to argue that North Carolina is not a tournament team? And maybe some people thought for a minute there that, oh, Virginia might be a fringe team. Well, 18 to 16 win over North Carolina, one goal win at Arlotta Stadium. That looks really good now after Notre Dame beats Syracuse and Duke. So it, who's to say that Virginia is not deserving to make it to the tournament this year? So the most important thing with these teams is that their game is dialed in. They're able to win enough games or keep these games close enough to stay in that tournament field. And then when they get there, that they're playing their absolute best lacrosse. Speaking of those ACC teams, Notre Dame won't be in action this weekend, but both Virginia and North Carolina will be, and North Carolina will be taking on Syracuse, who are currently ranked at the bottom of the conference. But as you're saying, really, any of these ACC teams are uh, contenders, really, when you think about uh, the NCAA tournament, not even just the ACC tournament, contenders for the NCAA tournament. Sitting at 5-3 and three on the year and 1-2 and two in conference is Syracuse. They host North Carolina on Saturday, but had a big out-of-conference game with Albany last Thursday that they were able to win. 13-8 to eight was the final. Syracuse snapping their two-game losing streak and trying to get back on track before they get back into ACC play. Currently lost in the mix, it seems, with the other teams in the conference. What impressed you from Syracuse this past Thursday, and what do you need to see out of them this week? weekend against Carolina to feel really confident about uh, in them going into this ACC tournament? Uh, for Syracuse, it was just a good way to bounce back. Um, after a tough loss at home against Notre Dame, it's kind of an important stretch to, to use this game against Albany. You know, you can say it's a rivalry game, but use it to get back on track as they dive back into ACC play to finish out their season. So uh, I was impressed with Syracuse to just keep their composure. Albany kind of hung around a little bit. Uh, but defensively, they got their heads on straight. Uh, and you know, we've seen at times this season where off-ball cutters are able to get open uh, on their way to the crease and different things like that. So for Syracuse, it was a time for them to get their defense organized. 
and make sure they were on track in that regard. And really a lot of the goals that, you know, I was able to see Albany score, it seemed like it was kind of in chaotic or transition type of areas of the game, places where Albany teams typically thrive through the creativity that Coach Marr brings to the table. But for Syracuse, it's just settled six-on-six six defense. I thought they looked solid. Good game for Drake Porter to get some confidence back. You know, he was the preseason goalie of the year in the country. So this is a good win for Syracuse to just kind of get their feet underneath them after a tough loss at home to get ready now to go back into that conference play as they've got three more games, North Carolina at home. They go on the road to Virginia, and then they go back and they play Notre Dame again, and that one's on the road uh, as opposed to the Carrier Dome. So those are three important games for North Carolina when you look at how uh, people are going to react in the media poll. If Let's say, you know, they go one and two in those games. What are people thinking about Syracuse then? And then the conference tournament's going to be really important for them. But it's just no need to panic yet for the Orange. They did their job. They did what they're supposed to do against Albany. I'm really interested to see what happens now as they shift back in a conference play and take a look at North Carolina, who's hungry for a win themselves after dropping one at home to Virginia. Yeah, North Carolina in the similar situation that Syracuse was in heading into this past Thursday. So North Carolina trying to get a win here. Notre Dame won't be playing this weekend, but we will have two more ACC matchups to look forward to, as we're saying, North Carolina at Syracuse set for 3 p.m. on Saturday. And then before the weekend, some Thursday night lacrosse, Duke at Virginia at 7 p.m. Eastern. Duke coming off their first loss of the season to a team that Virginia just beat two weeks ago. What excites you most about this one, and how do you see this game unfolding? Uh, I'm just excited for ACC Thursday Night Lacrosse. I think it's it's some of the most fun lacrosse that we've watched this season. Anytime you get the sport under the lights, I think it's just great for the game. I think it looks awesome uh, when you see the players out on the field, under the lights, feels like prime time. Uh, but I'm really interested to see how does Duke respond after their first loss. And I think there's an argument that, you know, the loss makes Duke more dangerous of a team. Coach Donowski he is okay with losing. He's okay with setbacks as long as his teams learn from them. And they always learn from them. It's it's what we talk about, the jokes that Duke always dropping a game in February. Well, they always learn from that. They bounce back and somehow they, they end up in championship weekend. So how does Duke respond from that loss? And then, North, or, and then for Virginia, the momentum that you ride from a road win against North Carolina where – you know, I don't know how many people thought Virginia was going to win that game based on how good North Carolina's offense has been this year. And then to see Naso and LaSala go at it at the faceoff, I think that's going to be really key. If this is a close game down the stretch, faceoffs are going to be critical as well as turnovers. So how does Duke respond to a tough game against a tough defense? And then just Naso's really going to be tested against LaSala, but he was tested against Gallagher and, and Charlie Leonard this weekend. And he responded really well, 73% of the faceoffs, as we mentioned earlier. So that's what I'm watching for, the faceoffs. How does Duke respond to that first loss? Obviously, they have to take care of the ball better than they did on Saturday. Some very exciting storylines looking into this Duke-Virginia game. Very excited about that face-off matchup. We'll, we'll be able to see that uh, featured on Thursday. And then just running through uh, the updated inside lacrosse rankings here for the ACC. Notre Dame with the win over Duke up to two. They're up to the number two spot from four. Duke falls from one to four. Virginia up from number six to number three. North Carolina falls from three to number five. And Syracuse remains down at number nine. We will see how those rankings all shape out here over the next 
week, next two weeks or so before the conference tournaments. Let's move on to the Big Ten. They were also in action this past weekend. Granted, we didn't have the most exciting scores, but notably we saw Maryland put up 16 straight goals on Michigan after they fell behind early 5 to nothing. An absolute onslaught from the Maryland offense that now sits at the top of the rest of the country. Number one in the inside lacrosse media rankings. Rutgers also went on to beat Penn State. 22-10 was the final. Rutgers looking to fine-tune themselves ahead of the Big Ten tournament. They play Johns Hopkins next weekend in Michigan in two weeks to close out the season. But the major storyline from the weekend in the Big Ten was Maryland pouring on all those goals. Jared Bernhardt and Anthony DeMeo each with five goals and two assists. Logan Wisnowskis with two and two. Bubba Fairman a hat-trick and assist. And Daniel Maltz also scored a hat-trick as well. Maryland now the number one team in the country. But Harrison, I know they played this Big Ten-only schedule. Some might say they've had it easier than others, especially these ACC teams that, as we're saying, all, they all need to play each other. Obviously, a very difficult conference being the ACC, but Maryland now the number one team in the country. Do you think they've met that standard and deserve that number one ranking? I really do think they have just because we know what Maryland is. We know what John Tillman brings to the table with his team. I think there's a very solid debate out there that John Tillman is the best coach in college lacrosse this season. I personally think he is just off of what I've seen from Maryland so far this season, what he's able to do. Uh, I don't know why more coaches aren't using the iPad like he and his staff are, but what he's able to do with halftime adjustments when yeah, going back to the first matchup they had with Rutgers this season. And there's a reason why Rutgers hangs with Maryland in the first half. And then the Terps start to pull away in the third and fourth quarters. They make defensive adjustments. They start to attack differently in offense based on what they're seeing from the teams they play. I think the only argument that you can have that Maryland isn't deserving of number one is just the Big Ten isn't as good as maybe some people thought they were going to be this year. And I don't think it's just because of a Big Ten-only schedule. right? The ACC is a really good conference because everybody's beating everybody in the ACC practically. We're not seeing that. We have, we've got multiple teams with two wins on the season in the Big Ten. We're just not seeing that same parity. So I think there is a strength of schedule argument there, but it's a really difficult thing to measure in a conference-only schedule. But knowing what we know about the Terps, Jared Bernhardt, Logan Wisniewskis, John Tillman, what he's done as a head coach, especially that defense as well, has just been stellar this year. Um, Maryland's deserving of that one spot. You look at how they've beaten teams. They, they've been tested. They respond really well. So uh, the Terps, yeah, very deserving of that one spot. And they, they proved it with a 16-goal 16, 16 run against Michigan. There might have been some doubters when they were down by five, and then they scored 16 straight and reminded you know, Michigan why they're the best team in the Big Ten right now. Maryland up from number two to number one with those four ACC teams, Notre Dame, Virginia, Duke, and North Carolina, trailing them in the inside lacrosse rankings. Rutgers remains down at number eight. And then the other Big Ten game that took place this weekend was Ohio State and Johns Hopkins. Ohio State getting the 14-12 win behind a hat trick from Ryan Tarafenko and Jack Myers. Jackson Reed scored four goals, and he and Myers each had two assists on the day as well. I talked with Liam Kelly last week about who we think might be the favorites come out of the Big Ten with that third ranking. Obviously, we got Maryland at one, Rutgers at two. We said it would most likely be Ohio State with their remaining schedule, but it started with beating Johns Hopkins here, and they were able to do just that. The Buckeyes getting back up to 500, 4-4 four and four on the year, and a major test with Maryland coming up next weekend at Maryland. We'll be talking much more about that one on Friday, but Ohio State gets this win, and it puts them two games ahead of the other three teams at the bottom of the conference in Hopkins, Michigan, and Penn State. So we'll watch and see how the rest of the Big Ten unfolds 
over these final two weeks. Again, it looks like Maryland, as we're saying, running away as that top seed. Rutgers should easily be able to fit in at two. And then Ohio State falling right into that third spot. We'll see how the rest of the pack aligns ahead of the Big Ten tournament. But Ohio State to get possibly home field advantage here in this first round of the Big Ten tournament. Let's shift gears to the Patriot League because as of late, I've loved talking Patriot League lacrosse because it is getting very, very exciting here over the last couple of weeks, particularly Lehigh making a push in the conversation for being one of those best teams in the country. They took down Navy over the weekend, the number 19 team in the country by a final score of 13 to seven. And it all started at the faceoff X for Lehigh has, as it has really for most of this season, Mike Sisselberger winning 18 of 23 draws on the day, good for 78% and tack on 11 ground balls to his afternoon. Another stellar performance from Sisselberger and inside lacrosse midseason first team, all-American. Lehigh remains as the number seven team in the country, but what do you like from this one with Navy? Uh, just Lehigh doing a nice job to stay unbeated. I mean, they are kind of looking at possibly a, an undefeated regular season if they keep this up. Obviously, really early to say that, kind of crazy to say that from what people might have been expecting to start this season, but uh, I, yeah, we talked last time I was on here about Army or Loyola, and we totally forgot about Lehigh, and and that was the week that they had beaten Army and Sisselberger just really, that was a game for him, kind of his coming out party for people who didn't already know who he was. I think that game against Army is why he was a midseason first team All-American. And he's just a junior and, you know, one of the top faceoff guys in the country, especially off a of faceoff percentage, he might be number one. Uh, but, yeah, with Lehigh, four games left, they got two against Lafayette, and then Bucknell, and then one against Villanova. That's really going to be interesting. But uh, Lehigh, I, I really like their game. They'll they'll go, they'll play anybody. They're not afraid to play close games because what they have in Mike Sisselberger. And then also James Spence, their goaltender, 64% save percentage so far through this season. And if you watched that Army game, uh, the saves that he was making a couple weeks ago were ridiculous to help them get a one-goal win there. So they have the guys who can pull off the upsets with face-offs, the goaltending, the defense – and they've got the consistency there on offense to play in a, a close game, maybe even a low-scoring game. But Lehigh, they are very confident in themselves up to this point in the season, and they've really got the rest of the nation on notice as well. And it, and they could really shake things up in the tournament field. Just as far as where their ranking is now, we'll see what happens in the Patriot League tournament. Uh, but, I mean, the Patriot League, they could very easily send multiple teams to the NCAA tournament. And it's been really fun to watch that develop over the last two weeks. I think maybe people were thinking, okay, Army or, or Loyola or whoever's going to come out of that conference championship. All of a sudden, I mean, between Lehigh and Army, those two teams could both find themselves in the NCAA field, which I think is really exciting. And they, they could make some noise in the tournament too. Do not overlook this Patriot League just because – they're not on the ACC network or ESPN or anything like that. They they have some legit competitors in this conference. The other Patriot League game we were watching this past weekend was Army and Loyola, teams that you just previously mentioned. Loyola fresh off a big win over Navy a week ago and Army coming off their loss at Lehigh. So an important game for both teams as Loyola tried to get into a groove. Army trying to get back in the driver's seat after falling to Lehigh. And Army is able to do just that. They get the 12-7 to victory there now a half game behind Boston University for the second spot in the Patriot League after they beat Colgate over the weekend. So the Big Ten 
or so like the Big Ten, I should say, the Patriot League standings being to come together here down the stretch. And we cannot forget about Boston University. We cannot make sure we do not forget about BU. Resetty will be very upset with me if we just decide to go on and, and forget about BU being a contender here in the Patriot League. But Harrison, what did you like from Army this weekend? We saw 16 saves from Wyatt Schupler and Cage. Aiden Burns found the back of the net four times in the win. What impressed you most about Army? And then going into these next couple games for Army, what are you looking to see? Yeah, what always impresses me about a team is when I see them win without their star. So Nick Turn is the guy for Army, and everybody knows that. And he's, he's a very good player, a great talent, one of the best players in that league. And I do not believe he registered a point in that game this weekend against Loyola. So if you can win a game, especially by five goals, without Nick Turn having any points at all, that shows that you have depth, you have versatility in offense, and you can adjust based on what a defense is going to do. Okay, they're going to take away your best guy. Well, who's going to step up? And they were able to do that. So this is a good win for Army. It keeps them at the top, uh, both you know nationally rankings-wise, it, it keeps them up there, but also it keeps them up toward the top in the Patriot League. And for Loyola, a, a team that a lot of people liked going into this season, uh, they're not 5-4. and four, and they've got to end the year with a matchup against Georgetown. So uh, not that Loyola is in like panic mode or anything like that, but they need to find some consistency on offense. We've seen some big games from Loyola, and then we've seen some games where they're dropping seven goals and you know they lose by five this weekend because of it. So Loyola's got some stuff to figure out. The talent is definitely there. The coaching is there. Um, but they just have some things to figure out. And then heading into the postseason, obviously anything can happen in that tournament. So uh, not a panic button, button mode yet, but, you know, five and four, a uh, tough break to lose against Army for a team that has a lot of talent potential. An exciting weekend in Patriot League lacrosse will spill over into this weekend. Army will host Boston University. Again, Boston University ahead in the conference standings by half a game over Army. We cannot forget about the Terriers. Lehigh will head to Lafayette in what will be the first of back-to-back -back meetings, as you mentioned before, looking to close out the 2021 regular season on a high note, possibly undefeated here over their final uh, four games, currently sitting at 6-0 on the year and then Loyola and Navy will meet for a rematch so some exciting stuff on tap this weekend in the Patriot League again we'll have much more on these upcoming matchups on Friday and now to run through some of the other games we had over the weekend Denver continues to roll behind a big third quarter 17 to 10 was the final over Villanova and in really unlike the last two three weeks TD Erlen struggling I guess you could possibly say eight for 14 on the afternoon Alex Tathakis handled business though 10 of 16 for nine ground balls and a goal we also saw hat-tricks from Lucas Kotler Jack Hanna and Jackson Morrow so Denver continuing to roll even though they do fall one spot from number five to number six elsewhere in the Big East Georgetown took down Marquette 10 to 8 to improve to 8 and 1 on the season ahead of their rematch with Denver this weekend at home. We'll have much more on that one as well come Friday. And some other lacrosse news from the weekend's action of D1 uh, lacrosse in the CAA. Hofstra knocks off UMass in their rematch from a few weeks ago, 12 to 11. The final behind hat tricks from Ryan Tierney, Justin Linsky, Linsky, excuse me, and Riley Forte. The three of them also combined for six assists on the day. Also out of the CAA, Drexel in somewhat of an upset over Delaware, 12 to nine, the final in a rematch of their meeting earlier in March that Delaware was able to come out on top of. So some back and forth here in the CAA. We'll see how that uh, bodes come 
tournament time, uh, conference tournament time, and NCAA championship tournament time. And then in the America East, Stony Brook improves to 7-3 and three on the year, 5-1 and one in conference play with a win over NJIT. Vermont also at 5-1 and one in conference. They beat UMass Lowell on the road, 16-5 to five the final. And Albany off their loss Thursday to Syracuse, turn around and top UMBC 14-9. to nine. And those four teams, including UMBC, currently sitting in the top four spots in the America East as we come up now on the final few weeks of the season. So a lot to look forward to over these last few weeks, and we will be here to talk about all of it. Ryan Holtz was Harrison Silcox. Harry, before I let you go, Inside Lacrosse released their Division I midseason All-Americans on Thursday. Some notable names filling out the three lists. There wasn't too many surprises, but a long list of guys relegated to that honorable mentions list. Matt Moore, Petey LaSala, Docs Aiken. I guess you could probably say everyone on Virginia that didn't make one of the top three teams, it seems kind of just those glaring uh, glaring names, I guess you could say. But there is is there anyone on that honorable mentions list that sticks out to you or maybe even a guy that was left off that, you know, one of those lists altogether that you believe deserves a nod for one of these three All-American teams? Uh, I was surprised that Petey LaSala was an honorable mention, but at the same time, what I kept running into when I was looking at this, because that's always the first thing you jump to when you look at the the All-American lists, is who got left out, who got left out. And I think what makes this year so difficult is there are so many people who stayed for extra years, whether it's COVID-19 or, or incoming freshman classes, whatever you want to say where who do you move to to move these guys around i know people were frustrated well where was why was ryan tierney a third team all-american well look at some of the other attackmen who are ahead of him you had nick turn caraway cavanaugh on the second team on the first team at sours gray bernhardt i mean there's depth at every position uh all across the board in college across the season attack midfield face off defensive midfield close defense goaltending uh, the the talents everywhere. The depth is ridiculous. So I I kind of had to go through that in my mind when I was looking at this list. Every time I saw somebody, oh, I'm surprised they're here. Well, I don't know who I would move out of the way to bump them up a little bit more. Uh, I was impressed to see Schellenberger uh, up there. Uh, I believe he was um, a second team All-American for Virginia. This is basically his freshman year. Uh, he was, uh, I believe he was number one recruit coming in, took a red shirt because Virginia, I mean, they were just too loaded last season. Obviously, the season gets canceled. I think Michael Krause is like the only guy to lead that offense. And so Schellenberger steps in as a redshirt freshman this year. So for him to be a second-team All-American stood out to me, uh, and I think it shows uh, how high his ceiling is uh, in, in the college game. But as far as guys getting left off or maybe being lower than where they should have been, I don't know who you move around, who you shove on this list. It's a big juggling act. And you can do the team one about and all that stuff, but you got to find, if you want to move somebody higher, you need to find somebody to move down a peg. And it's hard to find somebody like that on this list. Absolutely. Harrison, I want to thank you for joining me today, my friend. We are coming up on the end of the regular season. And that only means one thing. Tournament time is very, very close. And we will be here to cover all of it for you on GLE. Harrison, thank you again. Coming up next, Pat Gregoire to talk about Premier Lacrosse League. We'll be right back. extended on the lacrosse flash podcast network 
Welcome back to Goal Line Extended, Tuesday, April 13. I'm your host, Ryan Holzbus, and I want to thank you all for tuning in here to our seventh show. Harrison Silcox and I just wrapped up a great conversation to recap an awesome weekend that we had last week in college lacrosse. And joining me next to get us set for everything that we need to know heading into what looks like a very busy week here in the PLO is Pat Gregoire. Pat, what's going on, my guy? Welcome back to GLE. Good to be back, buddy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey, so we're, we're going to be talking a lot about the college draft uh, today, April 26th being the new date for that draft, just under two weeks away. But before we get into that, the PLO is dropping subtle hints here at us that there could be a lot of news coming very soon. Obviously, the college draft is in two weeks. We're looking ahead to that and getting ready. But most recently, and recently being yesterday, the league announced over social media that by Wednesday, we should expect to have every city on the 2021 tour, every matchup of the 2021 season, and the league will then begin rolling out ticket sales ahead of the season. So very promising. It looks like the plan is to have fans return to the stands. So we're all very happy to hear that. Again, all of this looks to be dropping on Wednesday. So some content to expect from us here on GLE for Friday. But Pat, we don't want to look too much into the matchups and speculate. We'll find out more about that later in the week. But some cities that you could see the league stopping at on this second tour, obviously, last season being the two-week tournament in Utah. We can probably expect some repeats from the 2019 season, but, obviously, but uh, absolutely looking forward to some new venues we should expect to be added. What are a few cities that you could see the PLL making a stop at in 2021, and then some that you want to see the league uh, make a stop at here that, that they didn't make the first time around? That's a tough one. Obviously, I would love to see the PLL come back north uh, in the inaugural season. Uh, we did see them come to Hamilton. Uh, unfortunately, with the current pandemic, um, you can pretty much count that out as it would be a nightmare, a logistical nightmare getting people over and back of the border. And I, I don't even know if the Canadian government uh, would let them do it at this point. But I'd like to see, you know, some up and coming markets. We know that, you know, the Maryland's um, you know, Albany was a great spot. We know those locations have been successful um, in the past. Uh, but I'd like to see maybe some of the up and coming hotbeds uh, maybe get a, a chance at it somewhere in Texas. Um, maybe we could maybe see somewhere in Florida or even somewhere in California. I'd really like to see that. Um, something like, uh, of that nature would be kind of cool. Um, just going off the board, uh, I think that the PLL, wherever they decide to play, uh, I think that uh, obviously Paul Rabel and the entire PLL team have these have had these locations picked out for a long time. Um, and I think that it just popped in my head right now as well. Obviously, it, it's going to have to determine about how many fans you can actually get in uh, to these stadiums as well. So obviously, Florida, you can almost expect that to be on there, as we're seeing right now uh, in Texas as well. In Major League Baseball stadiums, uh, lots of fans flocking to uh, different stadiums across those states as well. Some other cities we're hoping to see, maybe like a Raleigh, a Las Vegas, a city that we have not seen yet. So we will wait and see. Obviously, again, Wednesday, the league will be dropping all that information. So we are looking forward to that. Friday, we will be covering it. Hey, before we get into our college draft discussion for today, really what we're going to be focusing on, there are still a ton of names out there in the PLL waiver pool, just waiting for an opportunity to get snagged by one of these uh, one of these teams and hopefully get a trip 
to training camp. A couple very notable names that are still free agents as we are now inside two weeks until the college draft. And in talking to the PLO's Joe Keegan last week, his reasoning was that the coaches don't want to just sign guys to sign guys and then bring guys to camp just to bring them. We've only seen one head coach max out his roster at 30. That is the expansion team head coach, Coach Quirk of the Cannons. But a ton of talent still left sitting and waiting for an opportunity to play and compete. Pat, you look at the names still available. Again, every team except for the Cannons have the ability to go out and add a guy before the college draft and before that April 30 deadline. And that's obviously just, just obviously just speaking out of our knowledge of the situation. I'd imagine Coach Quirk, if he wanted to go add a guy, you know, if that was his choice, I'd imagine he'd be able to do that and then make whatever necessary changes later to get him to that required roster number. But we haven't seen teams push that roster max. For the most part, they're staying below that number. But that leaves a ton of talent available in the player pool. Who are some of the top names that you're still watching closely and what are some possible fits that you could see ahead of the draft and training camp? I think for me, and obviously I've been vocal on it on Twitter, and I, I think I've been pretty much vocal from the day that he, he didn't get drafted, and that was Mark Matthews. And I'm starting to think that this must be a, a logistical thing. I, I mentioned it already um, earlier in the show. Uh, that it is going to be difficult for some of these Canadians to cross the border uh, with prior work commitments or whatever it may be. Uh, I know that there are some Canadians that uh, that are going to be spending the full entire season down in the States, um, whether that's, you know, living at friends uh, or finding other ways, uh, you know, to stay there because it is going to be tough um, to cross the border, you know, play your games, come back and then have to quarantine for those 14 days that, that then does not allow you to train, doesn't allow you, you to work. Uh, so that's something that maybe, you know, a guy like Kevin Crowley, Mark Matthews, Crowley, you know, he, he's heavily involved um, right now in BC with Fusion Lacrosse, um, getting that up and running. But maybe you see him because he does have roots in Philadelphia. He lived there for a, a long, long time as well. Uh, maybe he decides to, you know, jump down to Philadelphia, stay there. And he's a guy that, you know, he's a former MLL MVP. The fact that he has not found a home yet, that surprises me. But again, maybe it's a, a logistical thing. And, and these are the things that maybe the, the lacrosse fan doesn't think of right away. Because if you're looking at just basic, you know, talent right there, those two guys, no doubt Andy Towers, be absolutely foaming at the mouth to get them in chaos jerseys. But of course, um, there's so many things that are going to go into this system, uh, this season. And like you mentioned, uh, teams aren't just signing everyone. They want to make sure um, that they're signing the right guys. They're not just bringing guys in, in into camp. Um, if they're just going to cut them, they're not, you know, the quote unquote camp filler. Those aren't going to, you know, really exist this season. If you're getting invited, you're going to be competing for a spot. And I think that's something that we're also seeing. But with that being said, those two names that I just named, those guys are not camp fillers. They are definitely good enough to make PLL roster teams and, and be impact players. So I think this is just an even bigger testament. The PLL needs to expand very soon because there are far, far too many good lacrosse players that are going to be on the outside watching this PLL season. I think that's a testament that a lot of people share with you. And then, as you're saying, for Canadian guys needing to live kind of on the U.S. side of the border, we just talked to Ryland Reese uh, last week, and he said, yeah, plan is to stay in the United States. Obviously, he's up in Vancouver right now. 
Let's switch gears and look ahead to the college draft. As I said before, Monday, April 26th at 10.30 Eastern, 7.30 Pacific is when it will go down. I did not read that wrong. A little late there uh, for us on the East Coast, but we will make do. The league actually, in the announcement yesterday, while also releasing Paul Carcaterra's Big Board 2.0, they had written 7.30 p.m. PT, which stands for Pacific Time for everyone else that wasn't aware of what that meant like me um i had never seen that before literally like on a tweet or like in a, a news thing obviously me being on the east coast so east coast bias baby east coast <laughs> bias <laughs> specific time used to determine the time of something like i said uh i was very confused at first but we figured it out eventually looking ahead to this draft each of these eight teams really don't have any glaring needs going in the only ones i could really argue for is the archers and redwoods kind of needing a face-off man and a few other teams that need backup draw guys and, and backup goalies but overall these teams look pretty set heading into 2021 looking to add some more talent going in obviously and for everyone watching or listening right now make sure to head on over to lacrosseflash.com austin owens put out a new article yesterday breaking down some of those needs for each team even though as i just said there aren't many glaring needs more just teams looking to add depth and that depth will be some really good lacrosse players but the college draft Date is set after being pushed back. The player pool looks to be coming together. One of the biggest things we were watching is what players decide to enter the draft and what players decide to go back for that fifth season. Seniors uh, on their, I guess, fourth-year seniors, you should say, I could say, obviously, granted that extra year. So it looks like names like Chris Gray and Nakai Montgomery, it looks like we'll be talking about them this time next year as we're previewing the 2022 college draft. But looking at this year's draft, we have two attackmen up at the top that look like they're they're set to go one and two overall. Michael Sowers out of Duke, formerly out of Princeton, and Jared Bernhardt out of Maryland. What do you like about these two guys? And then, Pat, you look at the two teams that are there, the Atlas at one, the Water Dogs at two. Either seem like a seamless fit for, bo for uh, both of these teams. Absolutely. And I think obviously right now you have Michael Sowers at number one, but as these weeks go on and on, uh, Jared Bernard is making a case for that number one pick. But I think the entire uh, body of work that we've seen from Michael Sowers, I think he has to go at number one. This guy is an elite talent. He is a generational talent. Uh, there are not too many attackmen that quite have the vision that Michael Sowers does have. And he can also put the ball in the net. I think if he does go number one overall, I think that, you know, him landing with the Atlas, that's a perfect spot for him. I think that we've kind of been banking on him since the draft list was uh, released that, okay, that's where Sowers is going to go. As I did mention, Bernhardt is making a good case. Um, as we saw, you know, Sowers just held to one assist against a very strong Notre Dame uh, team just this past weekend, but that's just one game. Uh, I don't think, I think the, the whole narrative of Bernhard making a case, sure he is. I also think that's just, you know, people building storylines, building up this draft and making things exciting as we do know that Michael Sowers has been pegged as this number one pick for a long time. So who, wherever they land, I think it's going to be Sowers, then Bernard. Uh, so I think that, you know, both those teams, the Atlas and the Water Dogs are going to get some sort of an elite talent at attack. Um, Although we talked off air and I heard you've been banging this drum for a while and I don't necessarily disagree, the water dogs trading down, that could be something that would be very, very interesting as they are pretty happy with their attack core. But at the same time, uh, when you see the talent that is available at number two, you got to be thinking that, you know, you just go out and get the best player available at that slot. Yeah, that scenario that I've been trying to like float out here. It's really water dogs at two, as you said, and then the chrome at three. 
and really the fact that there's a guy named T.D. Erlin, face-off guy, that really neither of those teams need. You talk about needs. Again, Archers and Redwoods, their need is a face-off guy. Really the last piece, yeah. I think, for the Archers is that face-off guy. So the, do the Archers at five try to make a move up to number two or three? If they make a move up to three, do the Redwoods try to jump them? They're sitting at four right now. Do they try to jump them to two? Obviously, the Water Dogs, if they were to drop back to four, if they were to drop back to five, that would be where they would go to in some sort of trade like that. They would – I would imagine get a very nice package. We don't know what that package would look like. We can try to maybe look at NFL deals, stuff like that, to try to figure <laughs> out how this would, how this kind of deal, something like this would work out. A, a number two overall college draft pick, how much is that really worth? Kind of trying to set a precedent. But, yeah, trying to see uh, maybe the Water Dogs move back from two, the Chrome move back from three. We'll see if the Archers or the Redwoods decide to make a move. Obviously, the Redwoods sitting good right now at four. If the Archers were to hop them, obviously, they would uh, – that whole scenario for them would come up. Do they try to trade up? Obviously, if the Archers go to two, I doubt the Atlas move out of one. So we will see how that all unfolds. Also, the chaos. Talk to Andy Towers later on in this show. He has six picks, possibly a chance that he moves up uh, in this draft. And then really possibly move up for this guy that we're going to talk about, ne- uh, talk about next. Another attackman that I know you also like a whole lot. Jeff T out of Cornell, unable to play this season as Cornell never got their season going. We heard some early rumors that he might be transferring. That, unfortunately, never came to fruition, and we haven't gotten a chance to see him play yet this season. But Jeff T, uh, questions around whether he would play last season. He ended up not playing, and he was still drafted in this draft. And our next guest, Andy Towers, selected him in the second round in 2020, and then he was the first overall pick in the NLL entry draft as well. Being looked at by a lot of these coaches as the top Pick absolutely as a top pick, I should say. Absolutely a first round pick if he is set on playing in 2021. How far do you think he falls? Or I should say on the flip side, too, how early do you think he's taken off the board given that he hasn't played this season at all? And what can T bring to a uh, PLL team this summer? I, I think that with the Chrome picking at number three, they're pretty set on attack. But with that being said, it's hard to pass up a generational talent. And I know I just mentioned that the other two guys in front of them were generational talents. So are they actually generational talents or not? If there's that many, or is this just one of the greatest draft class we've ever seen? I think it's the latter. And I think what we've seen out of Jeff T in his career, um, whether it be inside the box playing for the Brampton Excelsiors, um, at major series lacrosse, at junior A lacrosse, whether he's been outside with Cornell playing for them or for Team Canada as a youngster and being on their starting attack with all these studs that they have out in front of him, for him to make that team and be a starter and be a contributor, that just shows you how good of a player he is. He is so smart. He is so good with the ball. Uh, he can shoot. As I mentioned, obviously, he's a, an elite feeder uh, and he's a gamer. He's a guy that wants to win and he will win at all costs. He uh, shows no emotion when he plays. He He's a guy that just is so stoic, gets the job done, scores a goal, goes back, lines up, and is going to do that again, or he's going to set it up this time. He's a fierce competitor. He comes from you know a deep lacrosse background with his dad, Dan Teat, who coached him all the way up, a former professional lacrosse player as well. So this guy has been living, eating, breathing lacrosse uh, since the day he could walk and pick up a lacrosse stick. And it just shows right out on the field with how special, special of a player he is. 
an absolute game changer. You say he's he's I'd say he's elite as well. Obviously, I think you group these three guys, Sowers, Bernhardt, and Teat together. I don't know if Teat goes first overall, just given Bernhardt and Sowers' play styles, obviously what the Atlas probably look like they're going to be looking for, but I I wouldn't put it past Copeland uh taking Teat second overall. I think that is obviously yeah. a possibility. We're talking about uh whether Andy Towers might even try to trade up and uh and to secure a Jeff Teat. Absolutely. And I, I think that if Jeff Teat was playing this 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 spring, there's a good chance that he could have jumped, he could jump to two. I, I don't know if he goes to one and, and surpasses Sowers, but there's definitely an opportunity here that we do see him at two. And I think I agree with you. If, if he is going to sneak into that number two spot, it's probably going to be with Andy Towers making a trade up. We clearly know he likes him. He drafted him last year, knowing that there was a chance that he wasn't going to do it. He said it himself. You have an opportunity to, to draft Jeff Teat at that spot. You're going to do it every single time. So if you have an opportunity to trade up to number two with the water dogs, you're going to do it every single time. So he's going to be kicking tires on it. Uh, I can't say if he's for sure going to do it. He's certainly thinking of doing it. I know that for a fact um, because of how much he likes him as a player, as a person. He always talks about Jeff Teat's character as well on the field and off the field. And I think for, for, also, the big thing is, well, we know how much he likes Canadians. He he is basically building the PLL Team Canada squad out there. And Jeff Teat uh, is epitome of a box lacrosse player out on the field. Um, but he also can play the field game just as well as anyone can. So I, I think that would be a great fit. I don't know if the Water Dogs are going to pull off the move to make it happen. It would certainly make uh, a very late night on draft uh, a lot more interesting. But... I don't see him falling very far at all. Maybe, maybe four, maybe five. Um, but if you're going on pure talent alone, he is certainly in that top three. Speculating is what we're doing here, Pat. Speculating, yes. trying to talk a trade into existence. I know it's going to be a late draft. We're going to be, it's going to be a little bit hectic, but we're trying to talk one of these first round trades into existence. Hey, another one of these attackmen that we are going to be watching very closely as this draft gets underway is Penn State's Mac O'Keefe, another lefty shooter. And I say another because, frankly, there already are so many lethal lefty shooters in this league. But I don't know if we can simply call O'Keefe uh, O'Keefe lethal. I mean, there's got to be some other word out there that we can use to describe him because he is that good, so good. Currently out there, breaking records for Penn State, a shooter of his caliber. And this is more of a question of how far does he fall. I can't imagine he escapes the first round, but, but if not, the Alice have those three picks there. They have – pick at the end of round one and then at the top of round two where do you see O'Keefe landing I think it's right around that spot um you know near the end of the draft but wouldn't it be interesting if somehow the whip snakes were able to get their hands on on Mac O'Keefe at the end of the draft there and I know they're pretty set on attack but at the end of the day if you have an opportunity to make your team better and and to maybe not address a team need uh, but just get the best player available on the board, why not take a stab at it? And Mac O'Keefe, you mentioned it. You want to talk about pure goal scorers. This is that guy. Um, he's got an elite shot. He can score from the inside. He can score from the outside. I had the opportunity to watch him play a little box lacrosse. And if you saw him play in the indoor game, you'd think he was Canadian uh, playing for the Orangeville Northman, not afraid to get his nose dirty, not afraid to get on the inside. And that's what the PLL is all about. It's that physical play, the fastball movement, the shot clock. And I think his game fits the PLL games 
just so perfectly that I think uh, wherever he lands, it would be great. But could you imagine if somehow he found his way to the ship snakes and continued to just build that wagon even more? Seventh overall is where Coach Stagnita selects. We'll see if he takes uh takes a shot at O'Keefe. Obviously, would his already incredible attack, he would he would just add another piece, uh, which it seems like every team really at this point is doing that. But we'll see if Coach Stagnita does take a chance on him there at seven. And then another attackman that we're watching very closely. Tohoka Nantikoke was recently dismissed from the University of Albany. We touched on that story last week after Albany made the official statement. And this is more of, I think this is more of a question of how far does he fall? Because, you know, following that incident, he's dismissed from the school. How does this, do you think, affects his draft stock going into this college draft? To be quite honest, I, I don't know how much it, it really is going to affect, to be quite honest, because I know everyone talks about culture and, and wanting to fit inside of the room. Um, and, and obviously, whatever has happened at UAlbany, the time has, has come where it was just better for, for them to part ways. And for me, I think Tohoku Nanako was ready to be a pro. He, I, I think with the pandemic and the season canceling and going back, uh, maybe it was, and I know he, his big main objective was to graduate, and I respect that, and, and he's going to continue to try to do that. But maybe maybe his time was up with you, Albany, and he, and he was better off going to the pros and finishing his education. But, you know, he had a commitment to that Great Danes program, and I respect that. But obviously something has happened where, you know, the, the relationship was just better off uh, ending. So for, for Tohoka, though, if you think he's a bad teammate, or, or think, you know, he doesn't garnish the respect in the room or of his coaches. Well, that's just certainly not true uh, anywhere else that he has played. He wouldn't be playing, you know, as a youngster, as a teenager, as a call-up for the Six Nations Chiefs in major series lacrosse. He wouldn't have been playing on the world indoor and world outdoor team for Iroquois. Uh, it just simply wouldn't happen. Alongside the leaders of the likes of Cody Jamison, Randy Stotts, it just wouldn't happen. Uh, and I think that if you get him into a locker room with, let's say, maybe a Randy Stotts with the Chrome or, or with Lyle Thompson, someone who he also played alongside with the Cannons, I think he's going to be fine. There's no no red flags or anything like that. And I think if a coach knows that he has the proper leadership in place and he has the proper uh, you know, structure and proper culture, well, Doak is going to get in there and he's going to be just fine. Let his play on the field do all the speaking. And and clearly he's done that from day one when he's stepped foot on the field for you, Albany. And it's unfortunate uh, that one of the great careers that we've seen uh, ended this way. But I don't think that this should, you know, put a tarnish on his reputation. I, I think obviously coaches are going to be a little bit, you know, maybe they'll do a little more research. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think his, you know, his other the other things that he did in his career on some great teams alongside some unbelievable leaders, uh, I, I think that's going to speak more. And maybe this is just a minor setback for Toka, but uh, I think it's a challenge that he's going to accept. And I think uh, we're going to see some great things from Toka in the PLL. Expecting Toka might maybe to fall a little bit on the board, but obviously expecting him to get drafted somewhere in this four-round draft. I wouldn't expect him to fall too far, but obviously no with this dismissal. We are taking that into account. We also have two Ohio State midfielders that have been raising their draft stock over recent weeks. Trey LeClaire and Ryan Tarafenko. Tarafenko showing off what he's capable of doing this past weekend. He hasn't been playing – or uh, has or Tarafenko really hasn't been playing much all season, but finally getting back into action. LeClaire, uh, he's been playing 
fairly well all year being looked at right now is probably a late first round pick early second round pick where do you see these two guys falling and what's their best fit Leclerc having team Canada experience a lot of professional experience and then Tara Fanko obviously just a, a, a true midfielder really true two-way midfielder thinking that he's one of those other guys that's really going to uh fit well into the PLO style that short field yeah I think uh me personally, I think Ryan Tarafenko for sure um, should be a first rounder. I think his style of play, his athleticism and his smarts uh, fits perfectly for the PLL. Uh, just looking at it right now, he's not on Kirk's big board, um, but you know, everyone has their own big board. And on my big board, I would have him somewhere around that seven to eight spot. I think he's an absolute freak. He's a machine on loose balls. And we've already talked about him, but the whip snakes, if he could find his way on the whip snakes, uh, it's another stud midfielder that can move the ball up the, up, up the, uh, the field can play a little bit of defense can score on the run. Uh, I'm myself. I cannot wait to see what he does in the NLL, uh, but I have to wait a little bit longer for that. He did get uh, drafted to the Halifax Thunderbirds. He's going to give the box game a go, but going through some of his highlights, uh, seeing if he would translate well, it's going to, no doubt. And we've seen what he's been able to do at Ohio State. I think he's going to be able to do the same thing in the PLL. Uh, he's a, a fierce competitor, and he's a guy that is always constantly looking to get better. So maybe there, maybe he goes there, maybe even that sixth spot um, to, to go to the chaos as well. Um, he, he plays that up style of tempo. You put him alongside a guy like Challen Rogers um, and transition, transition, transition. Uh, and the bomb squad will be bombing even more. Maybe not Terrafenko taking as many outside shots, but maybe him dishing it off to Challen Rogers on the run. But no, nonetheless, I'm excited, obviously, as you can tell, to see him play, whether it be the PLL or the NL. But Trey LeClaire, um, I you know, this this is a guy that every single level that he has played, he's proven that he can put the ball in the back of the net. Uh, he's uh, one of the greatest Buckeyes uh, to play at that program. Um, I believe he already surpassed uh, Logan Shuff, Shust, um for, for most goals uh, in that program. Um, and he's a guy that, uh, as I mentioned, he, he scores at every single level and every single part of the game. So I think he'll probably end up somewhere in that second round. Um, but he's another guy and this is just unfortunate. There's just so much attack talent in the PLL right now that there's just such a log jam. These, you know, elite attack men are not going to get drafted as early as maybe they would. Um, and we're also seeing that with some free agents not getting picked up as well, because there's just so much talent at, at attack. Maybe Trey LeClaire gives it a, a try running out of the midfield. That's a, that's definitely a possibility. Um, but uh, I, I think it's just unfortunate that we're going to see a lot of these attackmen uh, fall down uh, on the board come draft day uh, because teams just don't need the attack talent right now. They're looking to fill another need, short short stick uh, D-middies, LSMs, defenders, face-off guys, whatever it may be. Um, you look pretty much at every single team, all their attack is pretty much set for the most part. Pretty loaded, I, I would I would argue. They got like six, seven guys that you could probably make an argument to start like first team attack. So a ton of attackmen, obviously for the guys in the league, possibly going to be at a disadvantage because obviously now there's more great attackmen coming into the league. And then for those great attackmen at a disadvantage, because there's already so many great uh, attackmen here 
in the league. Pat, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. A brief conversation here as we roll towards the PLL College Draft. A lot to look forward to as we start seeing some big boards, coaches putting together their plans just two weeks away. For everyone watching or listening, be sure to tune in over these next two weeks as we get you set for the draft. Before I let you go, Pat, the Panther City Lacrosse Club of the NLL has brought on Steve Toll as its defensive coach. Tell us a little bit about Toll and what we should expect from the new expansion team with him in the defensive coordinator role. Toll or speeding TV, Stevie Toll. So I, I think you can expect a fast transition that's going to move the ball up the floor. And uh, credit to Bob Hanley uh, for adding another great coach to this staff. Um, you know, he added Dan Teat uh, as the offensive coordinator. Uh, and, uh, you know, Coach Kaluski obviously running, you know, as the head coach. And then now you add Toll in there. Uh, that's three great minds, three guys that have experience coaching um, at different levels. Um, Teat and Toll uh, spending a lot of time in junior A lacrosse. Uh, and Kaluski obviously with some experience behind the bench with the Philadelphia Wings uh, and in major series lacrosse. So these guys have no shortage of, of coaching accolades, uh, but they've also played the game. They know. Um, you know, what it takes to be a pro. And I think Panther City Lacrosse is going to have a lot of young guys and a lot of guys that are going to get used to, uh, you know, playing the game. And I think they're actually going to uh, try to take a stab at a, a few American players as well. So having those great teachers and those guys that, um, you know, are going to to grow those players into young pros, I think it's perfect. And I think with, with Toll, um, Kaluski and of course, uh, T, these are passionate guys as well. Uh, they're not going to just let anyone walk into that dressing room and just assume, oh, I got picked in the expansion draft. My, you know, I I'm safe there. No, these are guys that are going to, you know, demand not perfection, but they're going to demand that these guys come in right away and they're willing to work. They know that it is an expansion team. It's going to take some time to collect those wins, uh, but they're going to build a culture that they want to be a championship team um, in the near future. And, and anything short of that is not going to be uh, you know, acceptable for them. Panther City Lacrosse, looking forward to their inaugural season 2021-2022. Obviously, you're saying uh, try to get a little bit more American. We saw the New York Riptide, the latest expansion team, trying to kind of doing a little bit of that. So we'll see how that unfolds there for Panther City. Pat, I want to thank you again for joining me. The PLO College Draft scheduled for April 26th. Remember to tune into the show for all the latest coverage and analysis as we near the draft. Pat, thank you again. Joining me next is Chaos Head Coach Andy Towers. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back to the show. You are watching or listening to Goal Line Extended, available on YouTube. And wherever you listen to your podcast, search up Goal Line Extended, and you should be able to find it. The podcast can also be found on the Lacrosse Flash website, lacrosseflash.com. I hope you're all having a great day wherever you might be. And joining me next year on GLE is a lacrosse legend, a two-time NCAA All-American in the 1993 Ivy League Player of the Year for Brown University. He went on to be an all-star in the MLL as well as a player in the NLL and the MILL, the major indoor lacrosse league, playing professionally for a few seasons. Since graduating from Brown, he's coached for a handful of notable college lacrosse programs, an assistant early on in his coaching days before serving as head coach at Dartmouth College, and he is now the head coach for the PLO's Chaos Lacrosse Club, the 2019 Coach of the Year, and he also serves as the American Scout for the New York 
Riptide. Joining the show, head coach Andy Towers. Coach, I'm so excited to have you on today. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be on. Appreciate that, uh, that lead in. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. A man of your caliber deserves that lead. And coach, I want to talk a lot today about this chaos team that you have heading into 2021 because I have a ton of questions. Obviously, you added a lot of talent here in the offseason, especially in the midfield during the entry draft. You have six picks going into this college draft in a few weeks. We'll get to all that soon. But I want to circle back to last season, the 2020 PLL Championship Series. Your team won 0-4 in the group play, as we all know, granted an overtime loss to the Redwoods in Game 2 after that one was postponed and scheduled for a later date. Four goals, though, in an impressive fourth quarter for your team, but a loss in that one. And then in Game 4, the overtime loss to the Water Dogs in the game where Blaze Reardon made 70% of his saves, and he did that a few times during the tournament. But going into the knockout portion of the championship series, we obviously know how it ended, the magnificent turnaround, the championship run you guys made. But you made a few changes, a few adjustments to get some different guys, some different looks. But did you foresee the type of turnaround that we saw your team display there in the playoffs, particularly in those two playoff games against the Chrome and Archers? Because going into that knockout stage, I personally had those two teams as kind of my two contenders, really, to challenge the Whip Snakes. You and your team clearly had other plans, knocked them both out and with a pretty strong punch. Did you foresee that type of turnaround? Uh, well, I think that, you know, certainly from those that have seen the deal from the beginning, I think it's, it's clear that any team can beat anybody on any given day. And we certainly feel very strongly about uh, our respective talent across the board. Uh, certainly it starts with Blaze and the goal. I think that he's proven that he is the best goalie on the planet um, at this point. And so, you know, his performance is never a surprise to us. Um, you know, I also felt like we were connected in a very good way on the defensive end of the field. Uh, you know, certainly we struggled at times to gain possession of ball. Uh, and Tommy Kelly cleaned that up in a very, very good, strong way in the playoffs, starting with, obviously, the Archer's game. I think he was arguably team MVP in that semifinal win. I he did a very effective job of, um, you know, minimizing the impact of Joe Nardella in the championship game. But certainly in the round robin play, that was, uh, you know, face off success was a, was a, was a challenge for us. Um, with that said, we were very confident that they would turn it around, and he did. Uh, but we also were very aware that offensively we were not connected. And so while we. Uh, you know, we're trying to win every round robin game without a doubt. We also, from an offensive standpoint, while we were trying to get connected, we also didn't run everything that we had practiced sort of during that week of training cramp preceding the start of the round robin play. And so we knew that there was some schematic changes that we were going to make, uh, you know, and, and, we also ended up making some personnel changes. Uh, you know, we've said from day one, we don't care who's on the field for us. We just want to, you know, do everything that we can to maximize our chances of, of winning. And, and, and so we, we made the appropriate changes. And, and fortunately, uh, our offense got connected very, very quickly. And we were able to support the goaltending and team defense. Um, you know, in the way that they had supported us through the round robin and came within, you know, whatever it is, uh, roughly a quarter or so from, from winning the whole thing. Yeah, I talked with a handful of coaches. I never got a chance to talk to you, but before 
uh, last season's championship series, I talked to a handful of coaches. Really, their message really was, you know, we don't want to show everything that we have, but we want to show what we what we think we we're going to use, what we plan to use once we get into that that tournament. And uh, really, we want to build off that. And obviously, your team was able to build off that. Your team beat Chrome 19-14 to 14 in the final, the highest scoring game and the most goals scored by a single team in the tournament. A very pr impressive start in that first playoff game and then a 13-9 to 9 victory over the Archers to punch your ticket to the championship game against the defending champion, Whipsnakes, who ended up winning later that day. And, like, and as you said, you got that chance to play them two days later for pretty much all the glory, your second meeting of the tournament. They got the better view the first time around. And then this game, really nothing that we expected early on. I think we expected goals and a lot of them. Instead, we got a 4-2 score going into halftime, an absolute dogfight that featured, as we're saying, a ton of saves by uh, Blaze Reardon and Kyle Burnlord, two of the best goalies in the game. That extended, obviously, into the third quarter. Your team won the third quarter, as you did the previous two, had three-goal lead heading into the last frame, and then something clicked on the other side. We really don't know what it was, but something happened. Zed Williams and the Whipsnakes face-off unit took over, one possession after possession. The Whipsnakes scored five of the – or uh, Williams scored five of the Whipsnakes, ten unanswered goals, and then that's that. A brief little look back there on the 2020 championship game. But I bring up the championship. I apologize. I know it's the last thing you probably want to hear about heading into this season, but mainly the possession after possession thing because your team struggled, as you, as you brought up before, in that department during the tournament, in that face-off department. And now with your first-round entry draft selection, eighth overall, you get your guy, Max Adler, hoping to go forward here with him as the chaos face-off man. What excites you most about Adler, what he brings to the table, and where do you think his biggest impact is going to lie? Well, I, there's no question that his biggest impact is going to lie on helping us win face-offs. Um, you know, that's why we drafted him. You know, I spoke to Max before we drafted him just to – get a better feel for him as a, you know, as a human being. And, you know, certainly everything that he had to say aligned itself uh, to a T to what our staff and the players on in our locker room want. And that's to simply win the PLL championship. And, and, and that's the only goal and the sole focus for Max. And that's our only goal and our sole focus as a locker room and as a staff. And certainly his success is very well documented in the MLL and against many of these guys that he will see in the PLL. Uh, he trains year-round with Joe Nardella, so we know that he's, uh, you know, getting high-quality reps during the off-season. And you know, it was obvious, obvious choice for us once Tommy Kelly got drafted. You know, Tommy Kelly is one of the best face-off guys in the world, and frankly. We were very disappointed when he got picked up by the Cannons. But once that happened, it became very, very clear that Max Adler was somebody that we were going to draft if he was still around at eight. And very fortunately for us, he was. So we jumped at that opportunity and feel that he's got the, the chance to be the best, uh, you know, best guy in the world. Um, and, and he's going to go prove it. But it's certainly in my short conversation with Max, it's very clear that what he's concerned about is team success. Um, you know, he's not concerned with being, quote, unquote, the best pro-go in the world, the best face-off guy in the world. And, and that's, you know, exactly what you want to hear as a coach. So we're extremely excited about Max coming to, uh, to our team. 
bringing in Max Adler here for the 2021 season, hopefully going forward as well. Kind of falling there to you at the end of the first round, some might say. Another guy, though, that I think many of us thought was going to fall or that we didn't really think was going to fall all the way to the end of round two. But here we are talking about it. Challen Rogers, Coach, you were able to draft him at 16 overall, a 6'4", 220-pound beast. I can't imagine the damage that he will be able to do on the shore and field. We've seen what he can do in the box transition game. Really just another added dimension to this team in the midfield, another Canadian uh, to, to mention that. And then how do you expect Rogers to fit in best on this team in an effort to utilize that full skill set that he has? Well, I think that, uh, you know, first of all, we were very, very shocked that we were able to get him. And, and we had a plan in place to draft certain personnel. Um, but then we had to alter that plan to some degree when Challen became available. And we were in very close communications with key players on our team. And as the draft unfolded, when Challen became available, that was an absolute no-brainer for us. You know, the fact is, as you referenced, he does a lot of things really, really well. Uh, he plays great defense. He's an unbelievable scorer. He's an unbelievable uh, ground ball player. He's physically imposing. He's as tough as you want him to be. He's a phenomenal teammate. You know, quite frankly, with sort of the hybrid offense that we run, I can see him uh, breaking in to our American line and being a tremendous value add on that line, just as easily as I could see him breaking in to our uh, more of our, our Canadian heavy line with Audie and Dane. Uh, you know, I could see him playing attack. I could see him, you know, playing some short stick defender for us. I could see him being on the wings and the faceoffs. I mean, listen, this guy is the, is the real deal, and he is the full package. And we would be foolish to not utilize all of his respective strengths to the benefit of our team. And that's exactly what we, you know, are going to do. Added Sean Rogers, 16 overall, hoping to use his full skill set here in 2021. Before the draft ended, you had the final pick and shows Kyle Jackson, yet another Canadian and Ontario Native American, even more box influence being added to this offense. What impact do you expect him to make on this very deep midfield that you've, uh, that you've assembled here over the past three years? Well, Kyle's another guy that we're just overwhelmingly excited about. You know, as a left-handed midfielder, uh, you know, playmaker, he is uh, a guy that we really can see making an impact as well. Uh, you know, again, whether that's as an attackman or whether that's on a mid as a midfielder, you know, when we initially looked at him, it's, it's, it's to be a midfielder. You know, we looked at trying to fill Kevin Buchanan's spot. Kevin Buchanan last year, played uh, on a line with, uh, with Dane Smith and, and Audie Stats, and, you know, as a right-handed midfielder, was able to play in our box-styled offensive set, you know, sort of on the left side, which is a testament to how good a player Kevin Buchanan is and how great of a teammate he is. And so, assuming that, that Dean McClass was going to get picked up by the Cannons, and we were really hoping that he would not, because Deemer had been out the previous year with, with uh, you know, uh, a surgery, and we were optimistic that he wasn't going to be picked up. But when he got picked up, it really created a need for us, a distinct need for us to pick up a left-handed midfielder and to be able to get a playmaker who score like Kyle Jackson that already has 
uh, an immense connection on and off the field with Josh Byrne and Dane Smith and and Talon Rogers. Uh, you know, we're getting a guy that, even though he hasn't been in our locker room, is very very familiar with critical pieces in our locker room and on the offensive end. And he is the left-hander that we need. Um, and he does a lot of things really, really well. So, again, I was uh, so pumped to be able to get both Challen and Kyle Jackson, seeing that their respective strengths are going to make us, uh, you know, complete, so to speak, on the offensive end. And I think the fact that these guys know each other already and have some chemistry with, with some other key pieces on our roster hopefully will allow us to get connected sooner than the playoffs this summer. Coach, we're talking about these two midfielders that you just added in the entry draft. But before the draft, another Canadian midfielder that you picked up. You sent attackman Connor Fields to the Archers in exchange for Ian McKay. And you're talking about kind of the familiarity that, that Jackson and Rogers brings. I mean, Ian McKay lives with uh, Dane Smith and Josh Burns. So how do you expect him to fit, on that, fit in on this midfield that we've been saying is very, very deep? You know, it was really tough to give up. Uh, you know, one of the best offensive players in the world in Connor Fields. You know, he's uh, not only a, a, a proven player and, a, and an unbelievable talent, but he's also a gentleman and, and somebody that, uh, you know, is just a great person. You know, with that said, we had the opportunity to pick up a guy that can fill a few different roles for us in Ian McKay. You know, as a, as a left-handed player, he has a chance to break into that second line with Dane Smith and Audie Stats as an offensive midfielder. But he also, having played long stick for the Canadian world team, we feel that he's a guy that can also be somebody that breaks in and gives us you know, a level of uh, toughness and a, and, and a layer of durability at the long stick midi spot to go along with you know, uh, Matt Reese and Troy Ray as guys that – so we're rolling out three sort of different style of players there. And Ian gives us the ability to, to provide a different look at that area of the field than what we currently have. Uh, you know, and then even beyond that, if he had to, he I'm sure could step in and, you know, be a, a, a instant, have an instant impact as a short stick midfielder for our team. So it was tough to give up on our fields as a proven winner and a proven offensive commodity. Um, and it is a great player, but for us to bring in a player that can impact our team at three different positions who played for Coach Curtis at University of Vermont, and so we know that his intangibles as a person, his you know, uh, mental toughness, his physical durability, his competitive spirit, his team-first attitude, you know, all things that are, are characteristics that you want your locker room to have in represent all of those things. And then obviously all having a relationship with, you know, Josh and Dane and, uh, you know, some of the other guys in our locker room, you know, fully enhanced a no brainer decision for us. Coach Towers and the chaos bringing in Ian McKay, also Kyle Jackson, Challen Rogers, and Max Aller. You sound very excited to be welcoming all those guys. And then talking about some of these guys, obviously, that you're picking up heading into this 2021 season. But you mentioned his name a few times there, a guy that you got the chance to watch play last year after he missed 2019 with an injury. Austin Stotts, his first season 
in the PLL. What did he bring to the table? How would you assess it? Obviously, you had a lot of high praise you have already for him. But what's the plan going forward to use him? Because going back to the adjustments made in the championship series, it seemed like most of those adjustments were made to get him some more runs and some more looks, a guy that you see factoring in on this team looking ahead. You know, we're going to turn Audie loose. You know, Audie, what he brings to any team is an unbelievable level of passion for competing. And, and he is as tough as a human being as I know. Uh, you know, he doesn't make excuses for anything. He simply goes out there and leaves everything out on the field. And that, again, is another tangible that's contagious in your locker room. And our guys really responded to Audie's success. And keep in mind, everything Audie did last year, he did with broken ribs. He was like in a, you know, debilitating car accident, you know, not too uh, many weeks before we went to training camp. And during training camp and during these games, he was practicing and periodically he'd get hit in the ribs and, you know, he would, he would sort of move to the side and take a few minutes, but I can imagine the level of pain that he was feeling knowing how tough Artie was and having broken ribs myself, you know, in college, I, I couldn't even sneeze riding a car. And this guy's out playing professional lacrosse and getting chopped up and, and, you know, managing the pain in uh, in a very discreet way. And so our plan is to turn a healthy Audi stats loose as much as we can, knowing that that is going to be something that is going to add uh, a le another layer of competitive spirit to our team, not to mention, uh, you know, the statistics that go along with that. But Audi stats, again, like, like other guys in our locker room, you know, he cares about one stat, and that's winning the game. And so, uh, you know, what we found out over the course of round-robin play last year is, you know, you want, you want all these stats to go out and play lacrosse. You know, you don't want to overcomplicate, um, you know, your, your, your coaching of him, so to speak. You know, this is a guy that, that plays a very unique style. He's an unbelievable passer. He's an unbelievable shooter. And he does things that not a lot of people can do or would do. And that unpredictability makes him a really tough cover and is part of the reason why our guys respond so positively to his success, and coaches included. And so we're, uh, you know, we're going to stand in the way. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna turn Audie loose. That's the plan. Turn Audie Stodds loose. I like the sound of that. Hey, another guy that it seemed like you let turn loose last summer was Josh Byrne. It seemed like he took that next step as a scorer and as the leader of this offensive unit last season, an MVP candidate. Like Stodds, you also bring in Curtis Dixon. It seemed like he fit in very well. As the tournament went on, these guys started to get into a groove. And now looking ahead to 20, uh, 2021, I'd imagine you have to be excited for what this offense should bring to the table. Obviously, all these additions we've been talking about as well. Yeah, I'm super, super excited. I think Josh Byrne uh, has absolutely, through his play in the tournament last summer, clearly has put himself in a small group of players that have to be considered the best on the entire planet, right? And, uh, you know, he just flat out and went and did it against the best players in the world at the highest level when the heat was the, the hottest. And so we're very, very excited about Josh's performance uh, last summer, but but frankly anticipate probably even in a better one this summer. And, and we're optimistic of that. Uh, you know, Curtis Dixon, you're looking at a Hall of Fame lock as an indoor player and as an outdoor player. Uh, and he's probably a Hall of Fame player 
in the United States as well as Canadian Hall of Fame. But this is one of the best players in the history of the sport. And to be able to get Curtis last summer integrated with our offense, you know, this is, again, another guy that just wants to go out and win. Uh, we knew he was a great goal scorer. What I didn't know that he was such uh, a good passer and played so great within the framework of our offenses. And, you know, when you've got Josh Byrne, who's, again, in the best player in the world conversation on the left side, and you've got Curtis Dixon on the right side, uh, you know, it really creates good situations for us. And so we've got to be mindful of, of uh, you know, schematically supporting these guys in a way that forces teams to make a decision on how they're going to uh, defend these guys. And uh, the fact that both of them are playmakers, both of them are just as good a passers as they are goal scorers, and also just as unselfishly willing to, you know, and hit the outlet and have the outlet be the feeder, you know, it really makes our team, uh, you know, difficult to strategize on how you're going to defend us. This chaos offense coming into 2021, very excited to see what you guys have in store. Coach, you also signed Dalton Croson ahead of the entry draft, a former NFL running back. He had stints with the Indianapolis Colts and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but you signed him before the draft, and right away you said that he is hands down uh, might be the most athletic player in the league. The word that you used was instantaneously. He hasn't played any professional lacrosse yet. This would be his debut, and it looks like he'll be heading to training camp with you and your team. How could you see yourself using an athlete like him? In recent comments you made, you talked about probably running him as a defensive midfielder. You recently lost another incredible athlete in Tyson Bell in that expansion draft, a guy that can play LSM and short stick defensive midi. So maybe in replacing his loss. Yeah, it killed us to lose uh, T. Bell in the expansion draft, and I applaud uh, you know the Boston Cannons for, for picking him up. That was a really, really smart decision. Uh, it, T. Bell did a bunch of great things for us. Not only was he a great short-sticking in the league, he also was a threat in transition, and he could pick up a pole and play at an elite level as well. And so losing Tyson Bell uh, as an on-field player was, uh, was disappointing, but really you know, losing him in the locker room was even more so disappointing as the guys really responded to his approach. The coaches loved his approach. You know, again, he's a 100% uh, team success focused individual and, and, and that hurt to lose a guy like that. Uh, with that said, we were very, very fortunate to be able to uh, pick up Dalton Croissant in the first bowl. And again, I stand by everything that I said. You know, you look at his resume as an athlete. This is a guy that averaged 12 and a half yards per carry as a high school running back on Long Island, which is very good football. It's a guy that, uh, you know, from an NFL combine standpoint, tested favorably to, uh, you know, uh, 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 Alvin Kamara and. Uh, up against a lot of those uh, other running C back it's, names. It's, it's C-Mac and Dalvin Cook and these guys that are you know, the best running backs in the NFL. Oh, yeah. Dalton Croissant tests out from a lateral quickness and explosive and a speed standpoint like them, and he's 5'11", 205 pounds, right? And so I stand by that statement that he's you know, the best athlete in the league day one, 100%. I don't think that's going out on a limb at all. Having spoken to Dalton a few times advance of picking him up, I feel that his, again, mental approach and emotional approach is exactly what we want. 
I speculate that he's going to impact our team's short committee, but if he comes in and he's able to play within the framework of our schemes and be a proven um, contributor and somebody that we can count on to run our offense and, 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 and uh, you know, increase our goal output, then he's going to play offense. And if, and if he better affects our team coming off the wing of face-offs or playing D-MIDI or being able to create four-on-three situations off the places, saves, and defensive stops, then that's where he will be. But we didn't pick up an athlete like that without understanding how much he can be a difference maker in our overall team. And so, you know, we will uh, work to find the best spot for him. And I'm very, very confident that he is going to be on our roster on game day. With that said, we're bringing in 30 really, really good players. And we got to come out of that training camp with 25 guys on our final roster. And we'll be dressing 19 on game day. And, and, and there's, it's going to be super, super competitive. But we don't care who we're throwing out there. Our job is to go throw the guys out there that we think give us the best chance to win. And that's what, uh, that's what we're going to do. Roster spots this season come at a premium. We'll see if Dolan Croson can find a, a, a role on your team and, and possibly one of those spots. Speaking of, of filling out that 30-man roster, six picks in this upcoming 2021 college draft. Your first selection is at sixth overall, then back-to-back -back at 14 and 15, and then closing out the draft with picks 19, 22, and 30. A very deep draft, a lot of talent available on the board. We'll see what falls your way, Coach. If, if it's anything like the entry draft, you should be feeling pretty good about it going into it. But this first pick at six, there's a lot of very talented players that could be around up there. We're thinking Sowers and Bernhardt. Some of those names will be off the board. But a few polls, most notably JT Giles-Harris, Jared Connors, they could be around. Jake Carraway, Mac O'Keefe, and Ryan Tierney, some of the top attackmen that should be available amongst others. And we can't forget about Jeff T. You selected him in last year's PLL college draft and then again in the 2020 NLL entry draft for the Riptide first overall. And he might be available to you for a third time. We will wait and see how it unfolds. We are putting together your plan for this draft. What's the strategy for this one? Again, a ton of talent. You have two very favorable picks in the middle of round two and three as well. Give us something to speculate here, Coach. What uh, what are you looking at in terms of uh, well, I, you know, To be honest with you, I, I kind of exchanged text with you the other day, and I love our current roster. You know, I, I look at where we're at, and I can't see a glaring need at any position. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to look at bolstering our depth in, uh, you know, the, the areas where the best available players are located. You know, if we end up coming up with a sixth draft and, and we see a guy like, you know, uh, Jerry Connors or, or, or TD Ireland or Jeff, certainly Jeff, like any of those guys that are sort of, uh, you know, I think generational players, I think that's a, uh, I don't think that overstates what they've done as college players. If any of those guys are available, we're going to, we're going to pick the best players and we're going to add depth to our, what we feel is already a pretty complete roster. And we're going to go to training camp and the best players are going to, are going to be the ones that we go with. You know, listen, this is, this is hyper competitive lacrosse. It's, it's pro lacrosse with the best players in the world, and these guys need to feel like they have to go out and prove themselves every rep of every drill, and that's what we want. And I think that these guys are the best in the world for a reason. I think they've embraced that, you know, perpetual dynamic of of competing 
for their roles on game day. And so I would expect our players to be ecstatic about anybody that we bring into our locker room, seeing that gets us closer to our ultimate goal of winning the PLL championship. Ultimate goal of winning a PLL championship. Hoping to do that here in 2021. Coach Towers, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. An absolute pleasure having you on the show. But before I let you go, I need to ask you, because as we've been saying, your team is very Canadian heavy. The one obstacle we might see as we come up on this 2021 PLL season is the situation at the border and quarantining and whether Canadian players will be able to go back and forth over the border. I've, I've already talked with a handful of players. Ryland Reese, one last week that said his plan for the Water Dogs, his plan is to stay in the United States. I don't know what conversations you've had with your players, but have you put any thought into how you approach this scenario if it gets, I would say, I guess more serious, maybe in adding depth to replace anybody that might not be able to travel? You, may, you also have all those two players on the military list we are waiting to hear from. So any plan there in regards to how you might approach that? Well, as of right now, our military guys are good to go. So I'm not concerned about their availability at all. You you know, I can't worry about what the Canadian government is going to do as it relates to allowing these guys to go, you know, back and forth out of the country. I, I remain optimistic that it's going to get worked out. These are professional athletes. And I remain optimistic that the PLL is going to continue to do everything that they can to allow that to happen. And so I plan on having everybody available to us. Um, and so, you know, I, I just can't control that in, in any way. So we're just going to be optimistic that it's going to work out and plan accordingly. And, and if we get news that it's not going to go that way, then we're going to have to adjust accordingly. And we will. You know, that's, that's part of the benefit of having six draft picks is that, you know, you can – ideally uh, create some cushion if things don't end up transpiring the way that we want them to. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but, but that's our viewpoint on it for sure. There we go. Coach, I love your optimism on it. I love your optimism heading into this 2021 season as uh, we're all very, very excited to see you, you and your team get back out there. Coach, I want to thank you so much again for joining me, the head coach of the PLO's Chaos Lacrosse Club, looking to get after it here in 2021 and hopefully chase that first championship. Coach, thank you again. I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks a ton, Ryan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate all you do for the sport in general and certainly for the PLO specifically. Go Chaos. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, you, Coach. I appreciate that. All right, everyone, that is going to do it for our seventh show here of Goal Line Extended. I want to thank you all for watching and or listening. If you are not already, make sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube as well as on whatever podcast platform that you use. Search up Goal Line Extended, and you should be able to find it. You can also head on over to the Lacrosse Flash website, lacrosseflash.com. All of our podcasts are there, as well as stories and articles covering all the latest news, particularly that article written by our good friend Austin Owens looking at the team needs ahead of the PLL College Draft. So make sure to go check that out. You can also follow along on Instagram and Twitter 
Twitter, goal line extended at GL extended. All the links that you will need will be in the description of the video or podcast that you are viewing or listening to right now. We will be back on Friday to preview this weekend's slate of college lacrosse games. We should have the 2021 PLL tour locations and a 2021 schedule, and then whatever else goes down in the world of lacrosse, you know that we will be here to discuss all of it. So make sure to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss the show. I hope you all have an incredible week, and we will see you on Friday. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at GL Extended, and subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast outlets. You can find Lacrosse Flash on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and online at lacrosseflash.com.